Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hello, my name is Kion Wolf, and I'd like to talk to you about Vice. There was a time when Vice held me prisoner, but I've been through many changes, and today my only vice is loyalty. Yes, indeed, if loyalty is a vice, we may say that I have it. What about smoking? While it is true that I once smoked cigarettes, it is my good fortune to give them up in the year... I mean opium. You smoke opium. Oh, opium. Opium is a tradition that goes back to the Mesopotamians, the ancient Egyptians, the Phoenicians. If you're going to call that a vice, well, you know what? Screw it. Loyalty and opium are my only vices. You recently binge-watched all ten seasons of Friends while you ate 27 bags of Halloween candy. I fail to see what that has to do with... Sloth and gluttony. Very well. No one is perfect. And yet, when it comes to vice, we may say that... Imperialism... If you are referring to the way I occasionally take over a small island nation and enslave its inhabitants, it must be said that... You killed one of the Goo Goo Dolls. No, Greg, it was the Gin Blossoms, and I killed two of them. Those are 90s bands. That's not even a felony in most states. And you know why I killed them? They were judgy. Losing your temper is a vice. You know what's not a vice? Shut up, Juice. So why don't you drink a big glass of it while I introduce this show? And now he's perfect, except he steals from the poor... Colin McEnroe. We're doing a show today about vice, and the more that I think about the show, the more I realize I don't really know what the word means. It's in some murky intersection of sin and bad habits, and we need to figure out what the word means. And the minute we said we were going to do the show, I said, well, you got to get Peter Segel. He wrote a whole book about vice. Now, here in Connecticut, Peter Segel's mainly known as the brother of Rabbi Segel. He used to be in Deep River, but apparently exactly. he, ha- he has this other sprawling career that uh, – most of us were unaware of. He's the host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, a playwright, a regular columnist for Runner's World, and the author of The Book of Vice, Very Naughty Things and How to Do Them. Welcome to this conversation, brother of Rabbi Segel. Uh, you know, it's just my curse that I will always be uh, in his Talmudic shadow. But that's, I just accept that. Particularly a rabbi's, like, a rabbi's brother writing, writing a book about vice. You know, what's yeah, I know. I just, 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 just to get back at him, I feel like Marvin Nixon. <laughs> All right. So just as an example. So uh, as you approached this topic back in the yes. innocent golden halcyon uh, year of 2007 and the years preceding Around. that. Yes. And we'll talk a little bit about whether the landscape has changed or not. But so you had to sort of figure out what constitutes vice and you you picked certain areas. Did you have sort of a working definition of vice? Is it just sort of things that other people do that some people wish they could also be doing? No, that's envy. And what I was really interested in writing about was the things that I might, and I stress might, (laughs) be interested in doing, Mm -hmm. but would be ashamed if anybody found out. And one of the things I write about is that this notion of social disapprobation or shame or guilt or whatever is actually a really important part of doing stuff you're not supposed to. You know, the idea of rebellion, right? I mean, there are things that are really pleasurable but are not rebellious, like going on a nice Caribbean cruise. Nobody would ever consider you a moral reprobate for doing that, though maybe they should. (laughs) 
<laughs> However, there are other things that people do, I think, in part because they know that others might disapprove. Right. And it, it activates probably a whole neural network of adrenaline and dopamine. Oh. I mean, I'm doing something I'm not supposed to do is fundamentally. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Right. And there are, you know, there are endless Hollywood movies about characters who, you know, come out of their shell and do something they're not supposed to do and feel so incredibly empowered. You know, I mean, there, I can't quote this because, of course, uh, unlike other public radio systems, Connecticut public radio is still very polite, very Puritan. <laughs> but there's a famous line in the movie Risky Business, which I'm thinking of. Sometimes you just have to say blanket. Yeah. And that, I think, is an important part of what people consider to be vice. And the thing that has changed, I think, you referenced this in the 10 years since I researched and wrote the book, is that it's harder to find things that will get you in serious trouble. Right. Things that used to get you impeached now get you nominated. Exactly right. And, and I think just like everything comes back to Trump in sort of this bizarre toilet bowl kind of culture we're in where everything sort of swirls to that one spot on the bottom. Yeah, I mean, look at Trump. For example, there was a time when repeatedly cheating on your wives, just as, as the tip of his particular sexual iceberg, mm -hmm. would make you a bad person. But now people seem to admire him for that. Well, I think he's totally fine. He's also, an, I mean, he's implicitly in another part of your explorations in that book about sort of just ostentatious consumption, right? You, right. You, you single out some people like Dennis Kozlowski. This is before you personally were able to afford your own oh, yeah. ice, now. ice sculpture of Michelangelo's David urinating vodka. Yes. But I mean, although so, I pr I prefer tequila, but that's just me. <laughs> yeah. Difference between me and just me and Dennis. So even then, there was also right. this element to it of look what I'm doing. Yeah, I don't know exactly if there's anything left, and this makes me sound like a moral scold. <laughs> I'm not. I think there should be some things that are beyond the pale in terms of you know standard Puritan morality, because those things are fun to do. And as the Hollywood movies, the endless ones that I have referenced indicate, having those boundaries are valuable because they're sometimes useful to break or to explore breaking. They can be a personal adventure. I'm sure everybody listening to this radio show has snuck off at one time without telling anybody, done something they weren't supposed to do, and either they've come to understand that something they love and they discovered something about themselves or they carry it around like a little secret, and I bet they're a little bit proud of it. And if everything's allowed, well, then where can we transgress? Although I feel like what we do is toggle madly back and forth between the two possible extremes because you'll hear people say things like, well, my last remaining vice is Diet Coke. And you'll think, right. well, in that case, you don't, really ha you don't really have any vices anymore. Uh, yeah. And instead of vices, now we have enthusiasms, which is not the same thing. And I met a woman, and I don't remember her name, but she's well-known uh, in the Internet community as uh, the sex nerd. Mm -hmm. That's her title. I'm the sex nerd. <laughs> and, and I objected because nerds don't have sex. That's, mm -hmm. that's like one of the things that makes them nerds, right? And she, she of course, argued with me, and I'm sure many people would uh, who are listening to me. But there's something about the normalization of the forbidden in that very phrase and approach that I kind of mourn. I mean, there was a wonderful thing that Garrison Keillor, of all people, I will cite him as a moral authority, wrote many, many years ago, which is that you should teach your kids to not swear, not because swearing is bad, but you, you want to save the swears for when you need them, right. right? When you're really upset or you really want to offend somebody, you want to keep that club in your bag, right? You don't want to use it every day. And there's a little bit like that in terms of all these things. It's like, oh, it's okay. Oh, you know, I had a threesome. Oh, it's all right. Whatever. You know, it's just what I like to do. You know, some people play Parcheesi, some people do threesomes. No, we need to keep these things 
special and hidden so they can be that much more fun. But I wonder if maybe the thing that we're doing, and this is something that is uh, was explored in your book, is just outsourcing some of this stuff. Because I, I do think people in some ways have become more abstemious. You know, I mean, if you were to write the book today, you would at least have to consider whether to have a chapter on sitting. You know, because sitting is yes. new smoking. Sitting is like this really horrible, loathsome, disgusting thing, which if you take it up in, in high school, you're not going to be able to quit it. One of the things that is always going around is there's always a level of shame, you mm. know. Right. And in fact, if you ever watch Portlandia, it is in many ways about a completely mirror image social shaming of the one that the country grew up on that was prevalent 50 years ago. There's a hilarious sketch, in, for example, in Portlandia about somebody who fails to bring their own bags to the grocery store. Mm-hmm. And there are all these levels of shame, social shaming for various things that you may do or may fail to do. You may not eat the correct kind of food or shop at the correct kind of place. But that's a different kind of shaming. I don't think that it's fun <laughs> to not bring your own bags to the grocery store. It's just annoying that people will look at you funny if you don't. That's why I think that the word vice as opposed to mistake or bad habit – or whatever else you might want to use, is an important word to maintain because it implies a kind of outlaw, out, what's the word, of rebellion, outlaw, outlawishness. Outlaw, mm-hmm. Why can't I think? Um, outlawdom. Outlawdom that I think <laughs> is important. No one looks at somebody who demands, you know, that they give him endless number of paper ba- plastic bags at the Whole Foods and says, wow, I wish I had that kind of courage. Nobody goes home and stares at the ceiling and thinks of doing that. But the other kinds of things that we do normally associate with vices, I think, speaks to that kind of human longing to rebel. And that's what we need. Yeah. Well, there's that letting notion of letting go. And actually, Portlandia does explore something which I, I think we might agree is a 2016 vice, a kind of letting go. And that's the, the famous episode where they start watching Battlestar Galactica and they keep watching yes. one, another and another and another. And pretty soon they've lost control of the whole rest of their lives. They've lost their jobs, you know. And so there you do see there is something like the letting go we might associate with certain other kinds of more traditional vice. And there is a little well, shame yet- associated. With it too. And yet at the same time, binge watching <laughs> is like a thing. Yeah. And even that, even like sitting around and doing nothing is now an acceptable lifestyle choice. But I think in that Portlandia skit, we recognize something, which is, oh, yeah, you just did lose a huge amount of time. Let, let me ask you something. Though. All right. In your world, which I assume is somewhat similar to mine, we both yeah. work in public radio. Is there something that somebody in your circle could do that would be both shameful and yet cool? <laughs> is, I mean, something I – mean, is there anything left? Sexual offense – I mean, I won't say offenses, but so, shall we say adventurism has become mainstreamed. Um, almost every kind of strange recreational habit has become mainstreamed. You know, we all know people who do – go out to Burning Man and do that sort of thing. We all know people who go to this sort of bizarre club or that sort of bizarre club. The only thing I can think of is intentionally owning and driving a very old and therefore fuel-efficient car. I can think of two things that would get you in trouble, and they're both called Hummers. I I think if I pulled into the WNPR parking lot in a Hummer— It wouldn't be a Hummer. It would be like a a 1965 Ford Fairlane. And, And forgive me if there wasn't a Ford Fairlane in 1965. I don't know anything about them. But if, like, you drove into the lot in this thing, this huge cast iron machine with your, you know, the top down, 
I don't know, there were convertibles in your arm in the window. I'm posing even as I speak. Ray-Bans on and you're getting like seven miles to the gallon, right? I would look at you and I would say, he should be ashamed of himself in this day and age with global warming. And I would also secretly think, oh, that's kind of cool. You see what I'm getting at? We're really – the things that you can do now that count as a vice. Oh, my vice is I drive a Ford Fairlane 65. I love it. Very hard to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean I think they may be hard to find for people in public radio. I think there's a, there is a, a group of people for whom there is a wide range of things that are kind of cool and acceptable and also fall into the category of vice. I mean we might yeah. be talking to a pretty small sample size, what public radio Although people you- think. Yeah. Although when you think about it, this is also somewhere where our society has fragmented, mm-hmm. right? Because depend, I mean, referencing Portlandia is a way of showing that there's one circle for whom the vices or the sins, the offenses are very, very different than another circle. Mm-hmm. So for example, I would say in our circle of public radio listening and broadcasting people being really interested in shooting sports <laughs> would be a vice. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you do this week? Now, like, I, do, I do tactical handgun training. Oh, do you really? And again, that would be something that's like, you know, obviously for all kinds of political reasons, not cool and yet cool in our circles, a little forbidden, a little dangerous, quite literally dangerous. And then there are other circles, obviously social circles, in which it would be very different, whatever it may be, in which that would be totally normal. And yet doing something else, like not shooting, I guess, would be considered the vice. Right. I would say, you know, one area that's become interestingly gray is, and where, as, as you and I record this, we're heading into the beginning of the season, is NFL football. I happen to be a big Packers fan, and I know right. a lot of people who are, particularly in the world of public radio, who regard that increasingly as an indefensible behavior, that this is like this, right. this, this horrible world. And so maybe I would call that my vice. I don't know if it makes me cool or retro, or, but I mean, it is sort of something that suddenly you're not supposed to do anymore. I know, although it, it, it may be that in our circles, again, that that particular pleasure of being an enthusiastic, knowledgeable football fan who probably even goes further and spends money on going to games is beginning to get to where my definition of vice was, something that gives you pleasure in part because of its social dip approbation. Yeah, I know, I know football is pretty terrible, but I love it, and I'm going to go. So there. So uh, it, vice isn't going away. It, we're just sort of rewriting the rule book all the time. It's certainly true. I think, let me, I think the one thing that is definitely changing, and this is true of so many other things in our society, is like one overwhelming set of conventions that everybody nationwide could agree on. Because we were just talking and agreeing that in our circle, having an enthusiasm for the NFL could be and may soon be universally considered to be a vice, something that is socially unacceptable. Well, there's a whole big swath of America listening to us that would say, are you people insane? There's a completely different view of that in a whole different segment of America. So, yeah, instead of, you know, like microclimates, mm-hmm. now we have micro vices. And I think there's also, uh, among the hipster generation, a kind of vice slumming that goes on, too, right? There's a oh, absolutely. There's this notion that you're going to drink Pabst Blue Ribbon and maybe get a big bucket of KFC or something, even while you're working on your artisanal pickles that take Precisely. 17 years. And, and, and there's sort of vice tourism. And that's also true of uh, sexual vices, which my book uh, touches mm-hmm. on a lot, is a lot of the things that were really forbidden and kind of completely outre even 10 years ago now are just something that, you know, hipsters, young people do of a weekend. And it's no big deal. They're just choosing to do that. They're going to this kind of party or they're having this kind of experience. I am watching uh, and really enjoying the show Broad City, for Mm -hmm. example. And the sexual lives that those characters represent, which I assume is accurate to what the lives of 20-somethings in New York is, 
is insanely louche. It's the kind of thing that the Marquis de Sade wrote about, and yet it's just their lifestyle. And so there's no element of sexual shame left for them, as far as I can tell. I don't think that's a bad thing. It just means that there's one less thing they can do and have secret pleasure about. Yeah, I think sexual shame, I mean, it's gone through so many different different evolutions and revolutions. Yeah. I mean, you and I grew up in an era when masturbation was shameful. I think it would be hard to get anybody worked up about yes. the notion of masturbation right now. Yeah, and, and there are so many other things that follow that. Multiple partners, casual sex, um, for many, many people, same-sex encounters. There are so many, just to take a random example, plays, say, from the middle part of the century in which the deep, dark secret was a same-sex encounter mm -hmm. that are like reading ancient Egyptian now to a young people today, that there's just no sense at all that anything this person did should actually be cause for shame. It's like reading um, an Oscar Wilde play, not the famous ones, but some other ones he wrote about sexual mores of his day in the 19th century that just don't make any sense to us anymore. Things have really shifted fast. Well, it's been great to talk to Rabbi Sagel's brother, Peter, uh, the host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, the author of The Book of Vice, Very Naughty Still Things. Still in print. And how to do them. Still in print with the soon-to-have-the-new chapter on sitting uh, added Absolutely. to the revised How edition. dare you? That's the only, that's like sitting, new chapter sitting. How dare you? You disgusting people with your sitting. The only thing I can't understand. All right, coming up in the next segment, Maria Konnikova and uh, later Robert Evans, editorial manager at Cracked, and also uh, with a competing book, A Brief History of Vice, How Bad Behavior Built Civilization. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Always a fun to talk to you, Carl. All right, Peter, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Joining us now is Maria Konnikova. She's been on the show many times before, but never enough, never quite enough as far as we're concerned. Staff writer on psychology and culture for The New Yorker, the author of Mastermind, How to Think Like, How to Think like Sherlock Holmes, and The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. She's also written uh, pretty extensively on the, the science uh, of pornography, or at least the science behind the effects uh, of pornography. And so that's a vice. We're talking about vice today uh, on the show, and we thought, well, We'll reserve one section to talk about this. So, Maria, first of all, one thing that you say in some of your writings about this is that this is a harder subject to study than you might think because we don't even really have a working definition of pornography. That's exactly right. I mean, in some ways, we're still stuck on that old you know, Supreme Court definition, I know it when I see it. Mm. What is art? What is pornography? There was a big controversy on Facebook when Facebook actually censored a Pulitzer Prize winning photograph. Mm. You know that iconic photograph 
of the little girl during the Vietnam War, and she's running down the street and she's naked. And Facebook censored it and took down the magazine's piece and said, you know, you can't do this, this is pornography. So as you can see, you know, we're now in 2016, and it's still incredibly difficult to figure out, you know, is this porn? Is this art? Is this acceptable material to view? Where do we draw the line? The one, one thing that we do know right off the top is that people watch a lot of it. 36% of Internet content is porn. One in four Internet searches are about porn. But what we know anyway that there's a tremendous amount of consumption going on. Absolutely. And we know that what's happening is actually that the consumption is going up and it's becoming consumed at a younger and younger age. Now, oftentimes, this isn't even on purpose. It's really difficult. So if you don't have any filters on your browser, it's really difficult to avoid pornography if you do any extensive internet searching. I mean, in my personal experience, I find that almost any innocuous image that I search for, within the first page, there's going to be some sort of pornographic image. I mean, that's, that's just kind of a rule of the internet. And so we know that both the appetite and the accidental stumbling upon pornography is very high. And I think one of the questions is why. Part of it is obviously, you know, our humanity. But then you start looking at kind of cross-country data and you start developing some other sorts of hypotheses, like do different sorts of cultures give rise to the need to watch pornography simply because there are no other outlets available and no other way to discuss sexuality or ask those sorts of questions? Maybe you're not even interested in porn. Maybe you just want to find out more about what in the world sex is if you're a 10-year-old and you have nowhere to turn. Right. One of the things that you said in uh, one of your pieces in either Eon or Aeon, we've never decided how to say the name of that publication, <laughs> is, is that, you know, that it's not so much that children are watching porn and this is terrible. It's more that children are watching porn and there's no counter narrative. There's nobody sort of saying, OK, so, yeah, you just watched that. Let me put that into some kind of perspective for you. That's exactly right. And all of the researchers I've spoken with, including this woman, Cindy Gallup, who has a, her own website, Make Love Not Porn, where she's trying to reverse some of this, is that what people don't realize is that pornography is to sex as Hollywood is to real life. But we obviously all have a counter narrative to Hollywood, right? You know that you know, you're not in a romantic comedy or a thriller or whatever it is you happen to be watching. It's very easy to see that on screen and say, ah, glamorized Hollywood. Now back to the everyday that I, that I live every single moment. For porn, that counter narrative, especially in cultures like ours in the United States, doesn't exist. I mean, sex ed is mostly about prevention and just don't have sex. And maybe if you're lucky, you'll, you know, you'll see a condom come out and there'll be some sort of very awkward demonstration. So, first of all, speak for yourself about Hollywood. I've tried to make my own life exactly like <laughs> Knights of Rodanthe. Although that may be why my life is unsatisfactory to me, because I've tried to make it like Knights of Rodanthe. So speaking of movies, there's a moment in the movie Itumama Tambien where these two young men have been traveling around with this rather beautiful, slightly older woman, and they both eventually do manage to have sex with her, and but they're unsatisfactory to her. And they, she says to them, in rather coarser language, you both need to stop masturbating. The, the notion <laughs> being that, you know, that they've been arrested at this other level. They're unsatisfactory lovers. Her criticism of them is effectively the criticism 
we often hear of pornography, which is that it's isolative, it, it's tied up with masturbation, and it probably is going to make you less able to engage in mutually satisfying sexual activities. So from the clinical literature, what do we know about that? Well, so first of all, that's, that's a very big uh, deal, not just in movies, but there's an entire movement online, which has millions of followers by this point called the NoFap movement, which is basically a movement to stop masturbation. And the argument behind it, which to start answering your question, has no scientific validity whatsoever, and the people espousing it are not scientists and have no scientific background whatsoever, is that if you masturbate, you let go of your sexual energy. And so the way to actually recapture pleasure is to stop masturbating. And then you kind of store up all of this wondrous and wonderful potential. And then when you finally have sex, it's this beautiful thing. Not true as far as we can tell. So all of the data that we have um, shows that, first of all, there's very little relationship between masturbation and sexual satisfaction in relationships, nor is there a particular relationship between watching pornography and lack of satisfaction in a relationship, which a lot of people seem to believe is going to happen. In fact, there's the opposite data that when couples watch pornography together or discuss pornography, that their relationship intimacy and satisfaction actually ends up going up. So I I don't think the problem is masturbation as much as what you and I were just talking about, which is not knowing, you know, not communicating, not saying, okay, this is what's pleasurable, this is what's not pleasurable. Now, that problem is going to exist whether or not you watch pornography. That is a simple question of, you know, are you comfortable talking about sex? Are you comfortable with your partner? Are you comfortable asking these questions? Are you comfortable exploring? As long as the answer is no, you might have never seen a moment of pornography in your life, and yet you're not going to be a satisfactory sexual partner. These are not things that you can just kind of learn without trial and error. And I think people love to blame pornography because it seems like this evil, horrible thing. And then you don't have to discuss all of the other uncomfortable things like, hey, we don't talk enough about sex. Hey, we don't talk enough about female sexual pleasure. That's another topic I've written about a lot. I mean, there's hardly any work done on that. And people don't really like to research it. People don't like to write about it. People don't like to talk about it. But we're sort of an interesting little point here because clearly for some people who for other kinds of reasons, I assume, have had trouble with, you know, having intimate relationships, who are lonely, who are isolated, who are whatever, you know, pornography probably does kind of fill a void for them. And there's that, there's that very stigmatized and kind of shameful notion of the lonely man getting his porn, renting his porn, whatever. But it does seem as though what you're saying based on the scientific literature that – If what you want to have is a mutual relationship, if you're seeking that through normal channels, the pornography is not going to make you more likely to do something really weird or something that would be destructive to that relationship. Absolutely. And in fact, the data show the opposite. So there's some really interesting longitudinal data from countries that have legalized pornography and then looked to see hey, what happens to attitudes toward women, levels of violence toward women? And you see they actually go down. And you also, actually, interestingly enough, in the United States, you see that among consumers of pornography, their attitudes toward not just women, but 
other groups. So, for instance, their attitudes towards gays, transsexuals, their answers to a whole bunch of questions end up being much more liberal. They end up improving because it just somehow makes them open-minded. And there's another body of research that shows that, yeah, some people who watch violent and kind of crazy porn are really, really awful to women and commit violent acts toward women. And you know what? It ends up that they did it before, too. So they actually sought out that pornography. The pornography didn't cause it. I thought it was interesting that in some of the uh, countries that are are more comfortable with some of this stuff, that there is this notion that really what you really need to be doing is talking to people at a very young age about some of these things. I think it was in Norway you described um, a children's show. It was aimed, I think, at third graders where the woman gave herself (laughs) hickeys with a vacuum cleaner to show how that works and, and, and used an anatomically correct doll and a dildo. By the way, I think Ryan Seacrest is shooting the American version of that show right now, but (laughs) Um, It's it's in pre-production. But, I mean, that was interesting, that notion that, okay, let's just talk about this stuff. There are so many layers of taboo in the American collective psyche. You wonder whether anything like that really can happen here. You know, I'm optimistic. I think that we have really moved forward as a society in recent years. Now, let's, let's ignore the political movement that's happening right now, and let's instead focus on the wonderful things that we've accomplished, such as legalizing same-sex marriage. Now, pornography is going to be more difficult because you have a lot of opponents And you have a lot of people who just have fundamental misunderstandings. And let's face it, I mean, sex is uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable topic to discuss if it's not already a part of your culture. But, you know, 10 years ago in Norway, we didn't have someone, you know, kissing a tomato to show how women like to be kissed. Our social attitudes do become more liberalized as more people talk about this. You know, for the first time, we're seeing research into female orgasms. That was unheard of 10 years ago. So who knows? We often tell people, don't try this at home. I think you can try kissing a tomato at home. I don't see how you, any harm. <laughs> if you want to kiss a tomato at home based on what you've heard Maria Konnikova talk about, go ahead. I don't see how we could even uh, have a liability problem there. What could really go wrong? So just to, with a few minutes left here, I mean, there's sort of another... I don't know if it's a taboo or it's a more of a, a normative statement, but there's sort, of, there's sort of, I think, an embedded notion that casual sex, although it's something that a lot of people are interested in and a lot of people probably want to have as much of as they can possibly get, at least at certain times in their lives, that that's not necessarily kind of the angle of repose, the natural ultimate resting place of human sexual behavior. Um, and, and I know that one of the things that you've looked into are people who, especially Jana Vrangelova, which is a great name for somebody mm-hmm. studying studying uh, casual sex uh, at NYU. First of all, is it kind of an understudied behavior? Is is it something that's never been studied kind of normatively? Like, what do people actually do and what happens? Oh, absolutely. It is tremendously understudied. I mean, people tried before. So there's the Kinsey Institute named after Kinsey, Mm -hmm. who has, you know, the famous Kinsey studies of, of sexuality. But those old models were really flawed because think about kind of the social climate of America in the 40s and 50s. Who is going to volunteer for your studies? Not the normative person, right? It's going to be someone who is more than comfortable discussing sexual issues. So you start getting a very skewed sample right away. And he didn't, you know, it wasn't like a national sample. It was, it was very hand-picked. And so all of our notions have been based on these 
lone wolves who do the best they can, but end up with very flawed data because they can't really do anything else. A master's study, now everyone knows about that because of master's of sex. Mm -hmm. That was also quite unique. And that was also quite problematic. And so there really hasn't been that much systematic academic research into it. What are you going to do? Are you going to send a grant to the NIH saying, I would like to study casual sex. Mm. I want to see who is sleeping with whom and why. They're going to say, are you kidding? We're going to give money to cancer. Or we're going to give money to AIDS. We're not going to give money to you. So it's difficult to study for that reason. And it's also difficult to study because how are you going to study it? You know, are you going to get people into a lab and have them talk about sex? Well, sure you can, but are they going to be honest? How are you going to get it nationally representative? So Jana Rangalova has been one of the few people who's even attempted to broach this, and she created something um, that she calls the Casual Sex Project, where anyone can come to this website, um, and she also does recruit via some traditional academic means, to kind of report experiences and there are some standardized scales to try to begin to study casual sex. What she's finding with her work is that a lot of people love it and it's very empowering and all sorts of great things come from it. It's not necessarily something that's awful for women or awful for men. Um, Of course, there are bad cases, but a lot of people seem to really enjoy this and derive a lot of emotional and psychological benefit from it. And we also uh, learn from that site that people in their late 60s and into their 70s, which is of great interest to the public radio audience, uh, they want to know whether. So uh, casual sex is not foreclosed. As long as you make your pledge, your donation, you're free to do whatever you want with whomever you want to do it. But anyway, the Casual Sex Project, which is an open site. Anybody can read it. You'll you'll find it quite engrossing, I think. So, Maria Konnikova, if we were to sort of boil this down to kind of one single takeaway, not that we're, we're that unsubtle, but really it seemed as though a lot of the assumptions that we make about attaching shame and dysfunction to the consumption of pornography or the engagement in casual sex are kind of culturally based as opposed to scientifically based. Absolutely. And I think the the best piece of evidence is look cross-culturally. You will find cultures where this is not at all the case, both with pornography and with casual sex. Um, And so you start realizing that, you know, we live in a very puritanical society still. And that has really played out in our sexual attitudes. Maria Konnikova, I feel much more grounded uh, having uh, spoken to you about this. Maria Konnikova, a uh, writer about psychology and culture for The New Yorker and the author of Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes uh, and The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. Thank you for enjoy- for joining us once again. I hope you'll come back soon. Thanks so much, Colin. It's always a pleasure. Okay. Once upon a time, with your promise, you was fine. Now it's a crime. And the word if you haven't heard is no more casual sex Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan, who drinks more white wine at breakfast than Kathy Lee and Hoda put together. Also by me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill appeared in the introduction, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Jimmy Swaggart. You can find all our episodes on WNPR.org slash Colin, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. On tomorrow's show, why David Ortiz is bigger than baseball. And now, back to Colin.
why do we do things that are theoretically not good for ourselves? Or maybe why do we define things that we can't help doing as vice? Those are all interesting and profound questions. Here to help us answer some of them is Robert Evans, editorial manager at Cracked and the author of A Brief History of Vice, How Bad Behavior Built Civilization. He was also a contributor to You Might Be a Zombie and Other Bad News and the D textbook. First of all, welcome to this conversation. Thanks for having me. So let's pick an example. Let's pick sort of a case in point. One of the things that archaeologists have discovered over the last, I think, couple of decades is that that beer might have been around longer than anybody thought and that beer might have actually contributed to the cohesion of civilization as opposed to inducing chaos and disarray, as you know, it usually does in, in lots of other uh, situations. So tell us about beer. Well, you know, in an era before we had defined currency, before people were using coinage or anything like that, one of the ways in which early governments, and we're talking about like tribal governments as well as some of the earliest empires, had to pay their workers was beer. And you look at especially Mesoamerica, the Incas, the Mayans, that's how uh, those empires funded essentially a lot of their great national projects is by getting these huge teams of laborers, giving them a liter or so of beer a day. So for those empires, it was very much a matter of continuing their existence to keep the beer brewing. And there's a strain of theory uh, that was most clearly elucidated in the paper, What Was Brewing in the Natufian, released in 2013, that 13,000 years ago or so, people started farming and began agriculture in part so that they could brew more beer. And it actually wasn't just so that they could make more beer. It was so that they could throw better parties. They also wanted to make more food and wanted to have enough extra food and beer that they could have some people afford to spend all of their time becoming musicians and whatnot. Because these these parties, these feasts, were sort of the genesis of all world government. Before people lived in nation states, the way that different tribes would get together to settle issues of territory to deal with their qualms was by throwing feasts together. And it was also a way that the more powerful tribes would sort of project power. You know, nowadays we project power by sending aircraft carriers around the world. But back then, they'd throw these giant elaborate parties And the essential message was, right now, we're spending all of our our time and effort and genius brewing beer and making great food and putting out these great musicians to entertain everybody. But if you make us angry, we're going to dedicate all of this this brilliance and capability to ruining your day, to, you know, going to war against you. So beer and, and just in general, the urge to party had a huge amount to do with the foundation of human civilization. Right. It could be even argued that when we send an aircraft carrier somewhere today, it's to make sure we can still sell Budweiser to that market. And and when you think about it, too, I mean, it's really still written into the ritualistic codes of our lives. Probably more often than we send out aircraft carriers, we have big White House dinners where there's carefully selected food and wine. But reading that part of your book, too, I was also thinking of the moment where early in his tenure in the White House, President Obama had that moment where Henry Louis Gates and the cop had the run-in on Gates's property, and Obama said something a little intemperate about that. And the whole solution was they met at the White House for beer. Right? They had a beer together. And you hear that all the time. You hear that George W. Bush beat Al Gore because he was the kind of person, even though he's a recovering alcoholic, but he's the kind of person you wouldn't mind having a beer with. The, you know, this that, that notion, anyway, that it's some kind of bonding device, a a social lubricant, I guess is what we call it. It never went away, right? No, it's kind of baked into the the foundation and even the modern structure of all of our civilizations. When it's not alcohol, it's something else. You look at uh, the foundation of Islam. 
which I, I think partly is a reaction to the fact that wine was such a central part of Catholicism. You know, Islam, obviously, alcohol is banned. But as soon as a new drug came around, coffee, it was immediately adopted, not just by millions of Muslims, but by the Muslim clergy. It became the, the, the most popular early uses of coffee was to allow people to stay up all night long and worship. Um, and in fact, Christians in many cases didn't drink coffee for decades because they were afraid that it was a heathen beverage. The Pope actually had to baptize the beverage of coffee in order to make it okay for use across the Christian world. So here's a song from the Broadway musical, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, that kind of illustrates one of our relationships to coffee. There's no coffee. No coffee? No coffee. No coffee. If I can't take my coffee break, my coffee break, my coffee break. If I can't take my coffee break, something within me dies. Dies down and something within me dies. If I can't make three daily trips, wear shining shrine benignly drips. So whenever I listen to that song, and I, you know, Robert, I was at a writers conference uh, up in Cape Cod last weekend, um, and the people who were running the conference said, "Well, we tried to set up coffee service here at the hotel. It's very expensive, so there's going to be coffee at ten and coffee at two thirty. And you really realized, particularly for writers, but for all kinds of people, for office workers, it really is like crack. People were like planning their days around the arrival of this big coffee urn so that they could get their fix. I mean, it, it might be the most successful intoxicant of all time, and I think in part because we don't think about it as intoxicating. It's, it's just fuel for people at this point. Not only is it an addictive drug, but it's a drug that's had you know wars fought against it. A lot of the, the early Muslim clergy adopted coffee and, and used it in their religious rituals. There were also uh, wars against coffee, fights within you know the capital of Mecca, which was the capital of the, the Muslim empire at the time, over whether or not coffee should be uh, banned. At one point, one of the punishments for possession of coffee was to have yourself sewn into a bag and thrown into the Bosphorus. Um, that was, you know, possession of coffee. Some places execute people for possession of heroin today. That was happening with coffee, you know, in the Arab Peninsula seven, eight hundred years ago. Zero tolerance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Zero tolerance. And actually, uh, as you document in your book, I mean, when you go to the store and pick out that Ethiopian blend, you're honoring a very old tradition in Ethiopia where coffee was what? It was kind of used to, as, uh, you know, dexedrine or something for warriors and hunters in, in dangerous situations? Yeah, it was a, a whole food. We discard coffee cherries uh, in the United States. Most people listening to this probably have never eaten a coffee cherry. But coffee cherries, in addition to being delicious, are very high in protein and have a complete amino acid profile. And the very first way people ever took coffee uh, was the, the aroma warriors of India would take a bunch of coffee grounds and coffee cherries and grind them together with ghee, which is butter that's had all of the animal fat removed, or that's had all the milk fat removed, or they would mix it with animal fat, and they'd wear it in a bag around their neck when they went off on their raids or went off to fight their wars. And throughout the day, the heat of their body would cook the fat into those grounds and into those cherries and make, uh, it tastes like trail mix. It's a delicious, delicious, chocolatey, rich, savory, a um, little bit greasy, like it's the perfect thing for going on a long run. 
I traded out by doing a half marathon on an empty stomach. And about eight or nine miles in, I started eating my coffee ball, and it was great. Yeah, I, it's amazing that Starbucks is not actually selling this right now. Um, they're, Maybe uh, they'll start. Yeah, they're they're yeah, missing a, a big business opportunity. So a lot of things uh, that we might consider vices don't start out as vices. And and as you as we're talking about with coffee, even though it's something a lot of us really are, I, I think provably addicted to at this point. It's had all these useful benefits. A lot of people even feel like the enlightenment happened partly because there were coffee houses instead of taverns. So you could talk with other people from different classes and different parts of the workforce and exchange ideas and you'd be alert instead of drunk. You'd remember the next day what got said so that it is really almost possible that one of the reasons we crossed over into a little bit more reason-based European society was coffee. And similarly, I mean, a lot of things that we think about as drugs or vices don't necessarily start that way and don't necessarily end that way. I mean, marijuana is on kind of an interesting journey these days. I mean, it seems to be moving out uh, of the forbidden class and, and into a slightly more decriminalized and acceptable class. But, but give us a sense of what marijuana's journey has been. The earliest reference we have to marijuana in Western civilization comes from Herodotus, who is, is often considered to be the father of history. He was an, an ancient Greek. And the way he was writing about the ancient Scythians, who were sort of an Indo-European group of horse nomads, and they used it not as a vice, but as a way to mourn for their dead. So if you lost someone you loved, if you were attending a funeral, the kind of high point of the funeral would be getting in a giant tent with all of your family members, and they would dump huge bales of marijuana onto heated stones in the center of the tent. And that was like the cathartic point of the funeral is everyone getting really, really like uh, almost hallucinatingly high together in this tent. I, I tried that method out as well with medical marijuana here in California. And it is a, a really like potent experience. It's very different from any other way you can take it. And I, I can only imagine if you're taking it surrounded by your family, having just lost a loved one, that it would be a, a really like emotionally tumultuous, powerful experience. And that was, you know, one of the earliest ways people use marijuana, not as a vice, not as a way to relax with their friends, but as a way to uh, mourn the death of loved ones. And there's a kind of howling thing that went along with this, right? Yes. I think the, the exact words of Herodotus are they are transported and howl aloud or something along those lines. Yeah. So, I mean, at the Irish funerals, we, we drink and we keen, or the women usually yeah. are the ones who keen. This sounds very, very similar. Yeah, it's uh, maybe more of a, a Jamaican funeral than an Irish funeral. <laughs> so, um, so Robert Evans, I know we're running out of time here. The book is A Brief History of Vice, How Bad Behavior Built Civilization. I don't know. Is there some kind of overarching takeaway that you wound up with from all this? I mean, maybe just maybe that notion that we, we think of self-improvement, at least social reformers sometimes think of the, the reform and improvement of society is the eradication of what they define as vice. Given everything that you've said and the other stuff that's in the book, that seems like a wild goose chase. Yeah, I think vice is a big part of why we are where we are. I think uh, many of the things that we do that we consider to be negative behaviors are also the things that brought us where we are. Human beings wouldn't be human beings without our vices. And I, I think one of the things that I came back to over and over again while researching this book was the importance of drug culture in sort of moderating the use of these substances. I think today the word drug culture usually refers to people wearing marijuana leaf t-shirts in a head shop or whatever, talking about getting high every day. But back in the day and throughout most of history, 
culture has been used as a limiting factor to stop people from taking their drug use from a ritual context and turning it into a, a profane, problematic context. You know, like the, the Scythians, they, marijuana for them wasn't something you did every morning just so that you could get through the day. It was something that you did during very emotional points in your life. And so because it had that context in that society, it wasn't used as a, as a frivolous drug. Tobacco was sort of the same way. The ancient uh, Americans didn't smoke tobacco. You know, they weren't smoking 20 cigarettes a day just, you know, as a way to fill the empty minutes. They were getting very, very intoxicated off of it during specific and ritually prescribed moments. It was a religious experience for them as much as anything else. And that culture helped limit the use of tobacco and helped limit its harm. I think maybe if we're looking at how we can make people use drugs less dangerous ways and be safer with their drug use. Maybe what we need is more drug culture. All right. Well, we've uh, run out of our allotted time with you, Robert Evans. I guess if people want to find out why they should try having a woman spit in their beer and see if they enjoy it more, they're going to have to read your book, A Brief History of Vice, How Bad Behavior Built Civilization. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Don't need no dealer to keep you waiting around. Out of town, don't need no friend of a friend whose cousin knows a guy. Don't need to worry and bread and panty before you can finally get high. Cause boy, if you don't got that card, you won't get very far. Cause you got the medical marijuana blue. Kion, I'm envious that you get to write these last words for the show. It's a cool opportunity to be creative. Greg, don't be envious. That is a vice. Okay. Well, what's your vice? Well, I'm pretty sloth-like, but... Uh, show's almost over, Kyle. I don't really see how that's a problem you have like when two seconds it left. comes to radio. <laughs>